Aloha and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Got Your Six podcast. This six-question podcast brings together high performers to share their methods, strategies, and ideas, delivered in an informative and, most importantly, actionable way that'll help you lead yourself and those around you from the battlefield to the boardroom. Coming to you every episode, I'm your host, Tony Nash, and into the breach. Nothing mentioned on this podcast is an endorsement or opinion of the Department of Defense. I got you six, we got your back. Got you six, we got your back. Got you six, we got your back. I got you six. I don't know what you've been told. The views we have are all our own. Yes, we serve the DOD. But my opinions come from me. Yeah, I got you six, we got your back. I got you six, we got your back. I got you six, we got your back. I got you six. Sixers this week, extremely special guest and a dear friend of mine, Tyler Gordy. Tyler is a decorated United States Army combat veteran as well as the CEO of Professional Warranty Services Corporation, a provider of new home warranty products and administrative services to residential construction firms in the United States. In 2002, owning to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Tyler enlisted in the United States Army where he served for four years as a former scout, sniper, and sergeant with the 101st Airborne. In 2003, he was injured when his vehicle exploded while on patrol in Iraq. Unfazed by his wounds, he linked up with another soldier and then headed back to the point of attack. For his actions, he received the Purple Heart as well as the Army Accommodation Medal with Valor for his bravery and service. He then joined the class of 2010 and 2006 at the United States Military Academy at West Point and was selected above his peers to be the first captain of the Corps of Cadets, which is the number one cadet overall in the class. After graduating from West Point, Tyler would then go on to become a commissioned infantry officer. He would then transition out in 2014 out of active duty to go on to pursue an MBA from Harvard Business School. This is a real treat and can't wait for you to hear our conversation. All right, Sixers, this is another episode where I have the opportunity and complete pleasure to talk to one of my dear friends, Tyler Gordy. You heard the bio we've already covered. I don't want to really go into that anymore. It's time for Tyler to share his story, where he's been, what he's doing, what he's up to. So Tyler, you have this very unique path where you went from the enlisted side through West Point, then back into the army, then on to Harvard business, and now doing wonderful things in the corporate world. There's got to be at least one thing though, that you implement daily from your time in the military. What would that be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, first, Tony, thanks for having me on. It's good to, good to be back in your presence. Um, when I, when I saw that question, I was kind of thinking about, uh, what's the one thing that I, that I do that I think is probably the most important thing, uh, in my day. And, and, uh, I, I was thinking about kind of the exercise component, getting out and exercising and, and trying to stay fit. Um, but then I was also thinking about this other piece of my health that I think is so critical, which is sleep. And, and actually good sleep doesn't start with eight o'clock at night. It actually starts with six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning and the sunlight that you get first thing in the morning, your retina actually has these cells that, uh, sense first morning light. And that actually sends a signal to your brain and that sets your circadian rhythms in motion. So every day I wake up and I get 45 minutes of sunlight. Sometimes I walk, sometimes I run. 
but I get that morning sunlight. I don't wear sunglasses. Uh, it's not like I'm in my car. I'm outside. I'm exposed directly to that sunlight. And I've seen such incredible health benefits by maintaining that practice. One, my sleep is deeper. Um, two, I'm really tired at night. By 10 o'clock, I'm ready to go to bed. Um, and then also, it's just, it, it feels like uh, I'm less stressed. I'm more able to, to be resilient and deal with whatever the day brings. And it just kind of sets the tone for me. So I learned that in the military. I didn't know I was learning it. It was like, hey, get up, get out of bed. You know, 4 a.m., you're going to go do PT. Um, and I, I didn't really understand the importance of that. I'm not even sure the army understood the importance of it at the time. Um, but there's so much research that has come out recently that has shown that that initial sunlight is so critical for your sleep, which your sleep drives your overall health. And, uh, so that's, that, that really is the one thing that I do. I am glad I'm not alone in that. Right. So I, I do about 10, 15 minutes where I'll go outside, but so you said you either walk or run. So when you wake up, you're going right from the bed, you've already probably laid out your clothes or something like that out the door and into the, and into the world. Yeah. I actually wake up and then meditate and then I'll go out and, and get my, uh, my sunlight. Yeah. So I'll walk or I'll run. I live, I actually live, um, right across the bridge from Georgetown. So I, I usually will hop on the key bridge, go into Georgetown, run through Georgetown and then come back and, uh, take a shower, start my day. What's the hardest part of doing that when you wake up and like just going outside, do you find any resistance? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, the resistance for me is always to get on my email and start checking my email first thing in the morning. And I think it's, it's important to stay disciplined and to not do that and to have that kind of 35 to 45 minutes of, of time away from that. So you can focus on just those few things to kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. But uh, that is my natural inclination is to roll over, open up my phone and immediately start scrolling through my emails and answering emails. And I, I try not to do that because I, I think it's a bad habit. It, it gets you focused on work and not focused on the task at hand. And, and uh, I think it's just better to kind of get started with those two basic things, meditation, morning sunlight. And if I'm doing a run or something like that, where I haven't done trained legs, you know, the, 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 the prior day before, then I'll run. If not, I'll just go outside and I'll walk. I'll walk for 45 minutes. It says a lot about you. One, as a leader, like you, you recognize you need to be able to take care of yourself first, set the conditions so you can go on to do things throughout the day. And then two, you recognize where those faults are because we are human at the end of the day. And you're like, hey, I can't, I know what I want to achieve going forward. I can't let this like quick dopamine hit of like checking my emails and feeling, you know, the importance of, you know, sending a response at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. whenever you wake up. That's super powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I learned that unfortunately the hard way, uh, I learned that through burning out and just not having those good habits to, to maintain my health. And I reached a point, it was actually our first year at West Point when, uh, when I was a first captain. And by the time I went into senior year at West Point, I'd kind of worked myself to the bone. And I, I, I unfortunately didn't have, I felt like I didn't have a ton to give that year in terms of energy. And, and really just from a leadership perspective, I felt like I was already, I'd already reached the point of burnout. And I had to learn those habits really through failure and, and recognizing that I hadn't taken care of myself, both my, my physical health and my mental health while I was at the academy. And I had to put those habits in place. And I know that if I deviate from that path, my health starts to slip. So I stay very disciplined with it. 
speaking on failure, what has been one of your greatest failures that's ultimately led to your greatest success? Like you said, you were leading the Corps of Cadets, the premier you know, military institution in the country. What would that failure have been? Yeah, I, I have a couple. I mean, one was the one that I talked about where I felt like I wasn't particularly effective uh, in that role my, my first year. So that was that was a, a failure that I look back on. I, I learned a ton from one. I learned about the the kind of the limits of institutional change, the challenges that come with changing an institution that's that's over 200 years old. But uh, you know, the the one that I look back on most recently is actually my my journey outside of Harvard Business School, going in and trying to acquire a company. I actually spent 18 months to do it, and I didn't get a company. I didn't close a deal. So this path that we had talked about, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You, you raise uh, a pool of capital from investors or you take your own savings and you go out and you try to acquire a business and then you take over that business and run it as the CEO. And you're essentially a one man or one woman private equity shop. And you're doing all of the, the deal sourcing. You're doing all of the diligence. You're working with the, the banks to raise the debt. Um, you're working with investors to raise the equity capital. And it's a really, it's a really challenging uh, thing that you have to do. And you have to keep all of those plates spinning at once, because if the funnel dries up on the, on the kind of the deal side, uh, while you're doing diligence, then you have to go back and start all over and, and try to find new deals. I found it to be incredibly challenging, incredibly isolating. You're alone. You're not working with a team. It was the first time that I hadn't worked with a team in years, uh, particularly as a leader, I was doing it all by myself and, and really my, success or my failure was entirely on my shoulders and not on my team's shoulders. And uh, I got 18 months in, I had a deal under LOI, which is letter of intent. You've, you've signed a letter of intent and you're, you're essentially saying that you're going to buy this business. And it, was, uh, it wasn't a huge business. It was a, a $12 million business. It was in Houston, Texas. And I was going to buy this business and go run it. And I got down right to the end and I decided to walk away from it um, for a number of reasons. There were some issues with the business that I couldn't get comfortable with. There were some issues with the sellers that I couldn't get comfortable with. And I decided at that time, it wasn't the, the right thing to do to move forward with the process. Um, and I had spent a ton of my own money. I was in debt up to my eyeballs. You know, I, I, at the time, I probably had $50,000 worth of personal debt. Um, that I had put into this business trying to get this deal across the line. I was self-funded at the time. And uh, I didn't get the deal done. So um, I left. And the reason, one of the reasons why I decided to leave was because the company that I'm running now was owned by a private equity firm called TA Associates. They're a Boston-based middle market private equity firm. And a financial firm, Kingsway Financial Services, which is a publicly traded holding company, acquired the business. And they were looking for a new CEO to come in and to replace the outgoing CEO and rebuild the leadership team, put a growth strategy in place, put an operating model in place and, and come in and grow the business. And I got lucky. I mean, I really did. I got lucky. I got, I, I threw my name in the hat. I heard about the opportunity threw my name in the hat, got hired um, as the president chief operating officer, and then came in in 2018 uh, and then stayed in that role for eight months and then was promoted to the CEO position uh, after eight months. And then I've been doing that ever since. So uh, I didn't acquire a business, but somehow I landed in, in this role. And I think, uh, you know, it was, it certainly was a failure. I walked away with $50,000 in personal debt that I had to pay off. Um, but I, I came into this role and, and, uh, this has been a tremendous learning opportunity for me. And, and so far it's been a success. 
you and I both know, though, that luck doesn't play a factor in any of this because of all the hard work you did in preparation for the Houston company and showing, you know, you like you said, you had to be a one-person show. So you were able to understand the whole side of it, not from an academic side like you were in grad school, but like real-world skin-in-the-game kind of perspective. And then to go and say, I've done this. And people automatically, like, they pick up on that, like, pretty quickly, I, at least from what I've seen. There's just something that comes along with that, particularly when, when the, the firm that bought my business, and this is very typical for acquisitions, they're leveraged buyouts. So they're, the deal has kind of two sources of capital. One is the debt capital that comes from the bank, and the other is the equity capital that comes from the owners or the investors. And the debt capital comes with covenants and restrictions. And if the business isn't performing well and you trip those covenants, the bank can seize the business. Uh, so it, it's it's a very it's a very scary feeling when you get into this thing, particularly as someone like myself. I had never ran a company. Um, in fact, I had never I had never had a civilian job as an adult outside of Harvard Business School. I went and did this thing, this entrepreneurial thing, and uh, it was not a success for me. And then I come into this business, and I'm running this multi million dollar company. And we're publicly traded, right? So we're dealing with Sarbanes-Oxley compliance and our holding companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So we're, we're dealing with all the nuances of that. And um, it, was, it was incredibly challenging. It has been incredibly challenging. But I think the, the one thing that I've always kind of gone back to and, and relied on as, as, as a foundation for me is the blocking and tackling leader, leadership experiences from my time at West Point um, and as an NCO, and then my time as an officer in the army, those things really set the foundation for me. And those are the things that I feel like people in the private sector have the hardest time grasping are those intangible leadership qualities. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll always be grateful for that experience and the trajectory that that set me on. That's interesting that you're leveraging so far back because of those lessons learned, you know, back in the early 2000s that you still implement on a daily basis. Has there been along the way, like some sort of like, I don't know, course or a book or some like some video that you also use or like, like you said, you, you go back to the blocking and tackling all the time. Is there another source you pull from as well? Yeah. From a leadership perspective, there's, there's a number of books, uh, particularly when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm talking about the role that I'm in now, there's a number of books that I think are really good. One is Four Disciplines of Execution. Great book. Uh, I, I believe it's written by Stephen Covey's son, and it's it's not an overly complex book, but it talks about um, the fu- really the the fundamentals, which is you know focusing on wildly important goals, acting on lead measures, keeping a balanced scorecard, and creating a cadence of accountability. Those four things, if you do them correctly, um, and when we talk about focusing on wildly important goals, it's two goals at one time, no more than two goals. You pick those two goals, you focus on those two things, and then you execute on those two goals. We we use that in my company. We use it as part of a broader operating model. We also use, it's kind of a hybrid of Danaher's policy deployment system and Toyota's Hoshin Conry, uh, where we we take you know the vision that I have for the organization, translate that vision into a strategy, and then take that strategy, put it into an operating plan. And then we execute on that plan through this, this 40X book. And uh, I have found that book to be probably the most important tool on executing, not, not necessarily on strategy development, 
it's a different topic, uh, but just on going out and executing on the plan, it, it's really, really helpful. And we do it on a weekly basis. We have a 30 minute meeting every Tuesday. We never miss it. Sometimes I'm not a part of it because I'm traveling or I'm, I'm, I'm a part of another meeting. The company still does it. We focus on the goals that we had for the prior week. If we didn't get them done, we'll dig into them. We'll diagnose, you know, kind of go through the four W's, the four Y's, why, why, why didn't this happen until you get to the root cause of the problem. And then we'll take the next set of goals and we'll line them up for the next week. We'll assign responsibility for those goals. And then we go out and execute. Very simple. That's a great book. Um, Principal Leadership is another one. And, uh, you know, I think one of the, the, the great quotes in, in Principal Leadership is around trust and, and the importance of trust. And trust is, is really kind of comprised of two components, character and competence. And you have to have both of those things in order to, to trust someone and to empower them. And as you and I know, empowering people is probably, uh, it's one of the most important things that you can do as leaders is, is to give them that trust and, and give them the, the what and not the how and allow them to go out and, and use their creative imagination to get things done on their own how do you kind of recalibrate, right? Because like you said, to be vulnerable and say like, I struggle because we all do. How do you find yourself recalibrating going back to those fundamentals? Because things can get really complex really quickly. You know, I listen to people. I seek feedback often and I listen to people and I take their feedback very seriously. I do it through a number of ways. I do it through uh, anonymous feedback. I ask the questions, what should I stop doing, start doing and continue doing? Um, as a leader, and I'll get feedback through through that mechanism. I do a weekly meeting with the entire executive team, and I get feedback through them. They're uh, they're they're very candid, um, and that's one of the things that we have focused on. Ray Dalio calls it idea meritocracy. I've heard the term called collective intelligence before, but from a, a guy that that served on the enlisted side and as an officer. I think of it in the same way as as a PL going in and listening to the NCOs on the ground who have the experience and the knowledge and, and who can tell you you know what a compass is when you when you don't really when, when you don't really know and you don't know how to use one. Um, I listen. I listen often, and I think that helps me really recalibrate and get back on on task. And and uh, Stanley McChrystal has a quote that that leader a leader isn't good because they're right. They're good because they're willing to learn and to trust. And uh, that's something that I, I try to do every day. And, and, you know, one of the questions that you had talked about is um, how are you better today than, than you were tomorrow? And for me, it's focused on that is I, I'm just trying to learn and to trust and to hear my people out. We're going to get back to that question because I want to deep dive into that in a little bit. But you talked about listening. There's also another piece that kind of went, you went without saying it's like actioning what you're told right? Or actioning the feedback that you receive, because we can all receive feedback and like internalize and be like, oh, okay. But to then implement what we learn is a completely different thing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I just had a, an example of that where I was given some feedback and I was kind of asking those questions, but it was more fener- more centered around what should we stop doing? I, I, I was hearing uh, kind of rumblings that we were focused on too much stuff. We were trying to do too much. And um, you hear often that businesses don't die from starvation. They usually die from indigestion where you're just, you're just trying to take on too much. And I think we had reached that critical point where people were, were getting to the point where they were kind of experiencing burnout and we needed to adjust. And, uh, 
it's like, okay, you know, these people have given me this information. Now, how do I go back and actually implement the feedback that they've told me? And that can be really challenging. So then would you say that's a new skill that you're trying to implement is like not trying to dial back and leverage, or is there another one that you've recently kind of tried to pick up? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a uh, certainly a big one. I, I I think the thing that I'm that I'm consistently trying to work on always is empowering people, and I think that that starts with hiring the right people that are that are kind of worthy of that trust that we talked about. From my perspective, the most important thing you can do as a business leader, which you don't really do as a military officer, is hire the right people. Make sure you have the right people on the bus. It's a it's a really different concept than when you come into a platoon or you come into a company and you inherit the NCOs. And when you say in the army, Oh, we, you know, we, we fired so-and-so, well, you didn't really fire him. You just moved him to the S4 shop or, or, you know, <laughs> the motor pool or something like that. Right. Um, firing people in, in the, the private sector is really challenging because you know that for the most part, these are really good people and they're working very hard for you. And this is their livelihood and their families are tied to this and their futures are tied to this job. And when you recognize that you don't have the right person on the bus, you have to let them go. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's ultimately the right thing to do, the less cruel thing to do. Uh, I think it's more cruel to keep someone in a position where they can't succeed. And so you either try to move them into a position within the organization where they can, or you let them go. But it's, it's incredibly challenging to do that. And when you talked about the thing that I'm trying to do, it's I'm always trying to figure out ways to make sure that I'm trusting people and empowering them. And I think that starts with hiring the right people that are people of high character and, and, and competent. Right. And like you said, it, it, it forces you then to make sure you're messaging the right things to then attract the right people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not easy. That process is not easy. And, and, you're, and you're also trying to um, make sure during the process that these are the people that you need, that they have the talents and the skill set and the leadership capacity to come into your organization and to affect changes in the way that uh, you need them to be affected. So it's, I think it's by far the leader's most important job. It's also, I think, the, the most difficult job. And like you said, as the leader, right, one thing sometimes leaders don't do well is reflection, right? So if we look back at the last five years, what would be something that you've taken away that has like dramatically improved your life to help you get to where you are now? So from like coming out of Harvard Business School to today? I think I have really come to look at suffering in a very different way. Um, and this is kind of a, this is a little bit, a little bit of a deep response here, but I used to, I used to view suffering as something that was really bad and that I wanted to avoid. It's like you're in ranger school and you're hungry and you're tired and, and you're wet and you're like, I want to get out of this. I don't want to suffer anymore. You know, I just want to, I want to get home and, and get away from this experience. Um, you know, I remember get, when I got done with ranger school, I would eat a dozen Krispy Kremes and then a, like a large pizza pizza for dessert on top of that because I had suffered so much, right? So I, I associated the suffering with pain and something that I needed to avoid. And I had done that for pretty much most of my life. And, uh, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've come to, to recognize that there's a lot of learning, really profound life lessons that are centered around our suffering. And it's easy, I know, to, for, for someone that's literally kind of, kind of sitting in a, a glass tower to, to, say, to say that, like, oh, suffering is good, suffering is grace. But um, when you compare that to, to people that are experiencing starvation in a third world country or have lost a family member or who are actively engaged in war, but 
I, I think of suffering as, as an opportunity to, to grow and to learn. And there's a, a guy that I really admire. He's a spiritual leader. His name is Ram Das. He was a former high Harvard psychology professor that went off to India and kind of started practicing the Eastern uh, religions. Uh, kind of a, I would say he's kind of a Buddhist, but he, he, he incorporates a lot of the, the Eastern philosophies into his practice. And he says that uh, suffering is the sandpaper of our incarnation. And it does, it does its work in shaping us spiritually. It's the sandpaper that kind of really rubs down the, the burrs and, and the spurs and, and, and really kind of shapes us. And I, I think that's true. And uh, he also says that suffering is grace. And I, and I do believe that, that there is grace in the suffering because of the, the spiritual growth that comes from these experiences. We take these lumps and we take these, these hits and they're suffering and we get banged up. But like, as you use that sandpaper, you, you're allowed to reshape the mold of, you know, the object, right? So that ding or dent, wherever it now becomes part of that story. And you, now you can leverage that in shaping the future. That's so incredible. Yeah. There's, you know, you, you hear, you often hear about post-traumatic stress, but there's also this thing called post-traumatic growth. And for anyone that's experienced post-traumatic stress and gone through that, um, it's incredibly challenging and, and very difficult, particularly when you're a young person and you, you go off to war and you, you see the horrors of war and then you come home and you have to integrate back into society and digest that. It can be, it can be profoundly difficult. But when you go through it, you come out of it on the other side and there are really deep lessons that you learn through those experiences that you carry throughout your life. And I, I think that's what that, that, that kind of concept of suffering as grace is centered around is we're here on this earth for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to grow spiritually. And it's unfortunate that that's the way that it happens for us, but through the suffering, um, I think is, is where we achieve the greatest spiritual growth. So that's, uh, that's, I think the one thing that I've learned really come to understand over the last five to 10 years is that while these painful experiences are things that we feel like we want to escape and, and, and get away from that actually, if we kind of sit in the experience and are present in the experience, there's deep learning opportunities. So we've talked about success. We've talked about failure. We've talked about sitting and suffering. Now, Tyler Gordy, you've hinted at this, but I do want to ask you directly, how are you better than yesterday? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of what I said earlier. I just, I, I'm trying to learn, uh, listen and learn and recognize that, that I don't have all the answers and that, that lessons come from a number of different places. Life lessons uh, come from a number of different places and just really trying to, to stay humble and uh, be willing and open to learn those lessons regardless of where they came from. So Tyler, where can people reach out to you? Where, like, where are you most active if people have questions about many of the different things we talked about? Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's the easiest one. Um, I have an email registered with AOG. I, I, it does come to me, but I, I get so much spam that sometimes it's hard to keep track of all the emails. Um, but if you reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and send me a message in, in my inbox, generally, I, I, I'll be able to see that and respond. The, the one uh, downside, I would say, of being a CEO, if there is one, is that people are always trying to sell you a product. So I get a lot of messages from vendors who, who want us to try this new product or software. And sometimes it's hard to kind of sort through those things. Um, but certainly if I see a grad and they're reaching out, uh, I'll, I'll respond. If they're not a grad, 
Um, and they just say, Hey, I, I heard from you on this podcast. Can we chat? I love chatting with veterans. Um, I love to help veterans, particularly people that are interested in the entrepreneurial path. Uh, that really excites me. And, uh, but, but yeah, absolutely. They can reach me there. I mean, look what you did for, uh, Lester Adcock, the 92 year old Korean war veteran. Like that's super powerful. We're going to link that story in the, in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, Le- Lester, believe it or not, he, he was my recruiter's dad when I enlisted. He was my recruiter's dad. Yeah. And uh, the guy that put me in the army when I enlisted, uh, I've stayed in contact with him. He was a great guy. He was in 75th himself. He was a RIP instructor there. He was in 275. And uh, yeah, his dad was a Korean war vet and, and uh, went through some tough times and we were able to raise that money and help him out. So, Absolutely. It was an, it's an incredible story. I'm glad we were able because I wanted to make sure we talked it. Tyler, thank you for taking the time. And of course... Thank you for having our six. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sixers, thanks again for listening to this episode. We're finally here. We're about to stack the wins for the first time. We've been teasing it for a long time, but as we've learned throughout these episodes, right, to achieve massive success, and I want you to know we have your back here at the Got Your Six podcast. We need to be able to stack those wins as time goes on. So this week, first, out to Nick and Jack from the Robin Hood Snacks podcast. Huge win to stack this week. As they got together, they've been recording their podcast, you know, since COVID's been going on uh, virtually and they were able to meet up in Vermont. That's a huge win. We're stacking that with you, Nick and Jack. Jamie Love out in Ithaca, New York, uh, for getting through her first 30-minute run after uh, surgery and just getting back after it. We're here stacking that with you. And then finally, out to Troy Bolden in Honolulu, Hawaii, for learning how to fold a fitted sheet the first time. All right, Sixers, we're here with you. And we're stacking those wins every episode. Keep sending them. Go to Twitter or Instagram, got your six pod. That's the number six. There's a Google form there in the link tree. Let me know when you or somebody else experiences a recent win and we're going to celebrate it here on the Got Your Six podcast each and every episode. I don't know what you've been told, Sixers, but the lawyers would like us to remind you that the views, opinions, and comments expressed on the Got Your Six podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests to include current and previous Department of Defense employees and should in no way be considered the opinions of or endorsements on behalf of the Department of Defense or any of its components, divisions, contractors, or other current and previous staff members.